Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. And you can go online to sunburymotors.com. Ford, Lincoln, Kia, Hyundai. Great pre owned inventory. Great service department, sales staff that does a fabulous job of working with you. Great deals to be had, too. All at Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia, Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. The Big Ten uh, Conference announced today that if the conference is able to participate in fall sports, men's and women's cross country, field hockey, football, men's and women's soccer, and women's volleyball, based on medical advice, it will move to conference-only schedules in those sports. So, again, that is if the conference is able to participate in fall sports, men's and women's cross-country field hockey, men's and women's soccer, women's volleyball, and, yes, football, they say based on medical advice, they will move to conference-only schedules in those sports. All right. Our play-by-play call of the day, the Minneapolis Miracle. Keenum's going to try to work the ball on the boundary. Keenum steps into it. Such a great play. They traded Stefan Diggs. All right, so what? And the Eagles kicked their rear ends a week later in the NFC title game. Yes. <laughs> Up to I'm that sorry, point, I the had great. To. Yes, I can tell you had to. <laughs> All right. So they haven't said how many games, but the number that keeps coming out is ten. And in those, and should they play those ten games? Maybe a lot of key Penn State players in those ten games. We had a chance now to bring in Austin Gale, Pro Football Focus. Austin, hope you and yours are safe and sound. Thanks so much for your time today. Of course, thank you. Okay, so uh, let's get to some of the grades. I mean, we're sitting here in July. Let's let me at least at least have some football fun. Let's let's do that. Fun seems to be in a short supply lately. Uh, let's start with Micah Parsons. Why does he grade out the way he does? I mean, obviously we see it on an everyday basis here, but why does he grade out to you when you watch him? Yeah, I mean, with Micah Parsons, it's the perfect combination of you know instincts, understanding the position, feel for the feel for the position technique when approaching blocks and then obviously freakish athletic tools you know this that's when you have that combination you're talking about a linebacker prospect that is a generational type of prospect i mean you could compare him to i think the, the only other linebacker that even comes to mind when thinking about michael parsons is reuben foster obviously before the off-field issues kind of took over his career but what reuben foster could do on the football field was rare to the, the highest degree. And Micah Parsons is in that boat. His tackling, his block shedding, instincts, athletic ability, sideline to sideline speed, 
is all up there with the best we've honestly seen over the past five-plus years. I wouldn't even put Devin White and Devin Bush, two first-round picks, in the same conversation as Micah Parsons. That's just how good this kid is. In fact, uh, Jack Ham and I have been talking about him, and we're anxious to see him get his first interception because I think it could turn into something really fun. Uh, but I've told people on other shows when I've been the guest, Austin, you know, when they ask me about Micah Parsons, I said, "Look, he's not. He said he's not just what arguably the best linebacker in the country. He's one of the better players, period, in the country." No, you're, and you're not wrong. I mean, he's going to be one of the better players in this upcoming draft. He's one of the better players, if not the best player, in the in college football right now. You'd only put probably Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, considering positional value, Penny Sewell of Oregon. And then after that, those three, like Micah Parsons is the next guy in line. Maybe you throw in the underclassman Derek Stingley Jr. of LSU. But, like, those are the names, the very few names that you're even willing to bring up as the best players in college football right now. And then there's Pat Frymuth. Uh, if he wishes to come on at the end of this season, he can. He could have last year, as a matter of fact. He elected to come back. What do you see with him? Yeah, I mean, the Gronk comparisons are obvious, and I don't necessarily think they're wrong. I mean, it's easy, it's fun to compare a tight end of his size and athletic ability to one of the best tight ends the NFL has ever seen. However, what he does after the catch, his brutish, bully-like ability to you know blow off tackles and, and really move the football after the catch is what the NFL wants. The tight end position is easy to scheme open. Ask Kyle Shanahan and why he's been able to turn George Kittle into one of the NFL's best tight ends. Scheming him open, getting him open is easy, and what he does after the catch is some of the best we've ever seen. George Kittle's yards after the catch per reception, I think in 2018, is the best single figure we've seen since 2006 in the NFL. He's getting open, and when he gets the ball in his hands, he makes plays after the catch. That's what you need at the tight end position in the NFL, and Firemuth brings that to the table. In addition to being able to get open when you know, split out to the plot or even at inline tight end, getting open, though, is second to what you do with the ball in your hands, because tight ends, again, face a ton of off coverage or running against zone. You don't need to be a tight end that needs to beat man coverage to have success in the NFL. What you need is when you catch the football to make plays happen. It's why Evan Ingram, Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, Rob, Rob Gronkowski have had all the success in the NFL. It's what they do after the catch. And fire move from what all I've seen at Penn State can do damage after the catch. There are several players, and I mentioned Fryermuth as one. Fryermuth had a chance. He could have gone uh, to the NFL draft, he elected to come back. He's not the only one that did. On the corner is Tariq Castro-Fields, who has a stat line that I think most people would love to have. Three years here and has never allowed a touchdown pass. That's pretty good. Uh, but what do you see in him, and what the, where does he have to be better this season to really improve his draft status in your mind? Yeah, I mean, reviewing his grades right now to kind of get an understanding of, like, where he's had success and where he hasn't. I think you have to think about, you know, obviously volume. You, with the cornerback position, you've talked a lot about TCU's Jeff Gladney this past year, a guy that had right. a ton of volume, a ton of targets. You want to be battle-tested at cornerback position. And that's what you have seen with Castro Fields over the past three years. This past season, 60 targets, only 35 receptions allowed. Uh, you know, those are impressive numbers. I think where you'd like to see more of that is the, is the ball production. Only four passes defense this past year. Yes, he had two picks. But those guys that, you know, I've talked to a lot of scouts and even other analysts, Dane Brugler of The Athletic, 
talking about evaluating you know, defensive backs. And he says, when you see that ball production at the collegiate level, those passes to fans, batted passes, interceptions, guys that are always around the football, always making plays on the ball, that translates to the NFL. If I had to highlight an area of improvement, you can't just be a good cover corner. You have to you know, force those incompletions. You have to win targeted, make those plays at the catch point. I think that's where he could get better in next year. Yeah, uh, and so then you look at guys off the edge, for example. Uh, another guy that decided to come, come back was uh, Shaka Tony. Uh, now, he's, got more, he's had more playing time as time has gone along. What does now he need in his fifth-year season to make himself that puts himself on some day in the NFL draft? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. He's not the first name that comes to mind when you're thinking about a defensive lineman for this Penn State team. But yeah. you know, looking at Shaka Tony and what he's done over the past few years, played over 600 snaps this past year. I mean, you're, you're probably looking at you're probably looking at Jason Owe, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Jason Owe. I I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I think he's a better prospect, a better player than Etor Grossmatos, who was recently drafted in the NFL this past year. Jason Owe can hit the ceiling and then some. This kid is a rocket. I've heard some figures about his athletic testing that are just rare by every sense of the word. And what he did this past year, when you see those flashes of high-end pass rushing ability, when you're beating top-tier tackles off the edge with speed and hands. That is what gets NFL teams excited. That's what gets evaluators excited. And then you combine that with the tools he has. He still has a ton of room to grow, add to the toolbox. I'm really, really looking forward to Oway's upcoming season. As for Tony, I mean, you look at this past year, a career year in a lot of ways, 43 total pressures, a 76.9 PFF pass rushing grade. You'd like to see more consistency at two games of over five pressures and then towards the back end of the season against Ohio State and Memphis wasn't able to kind of keep those totals going. But in your first year as like a regular starter, when you're playing over 400, 500 snaps, it's hard to kind of keep it going through the end of the year. It's those guys who have experience with that that can carry it all through regardless of competition. He and Owe both have opportunities to significantly improve their stock, significantly improve their play time this upcoming year. Uh, offensive line. Uh, the guy in the middle, Michael Mennett. Uh, he's the quarterback of that offensive line. He, he decided to come back for his fifth year. I uh, played banged up at the end of last year, but what do you see in him? I mean, this past year, he's the fourth-highest-graded player uh, on the offensive side of the ball for Penn State. Yep. I, I think starting starting with offensive line, first thing you're always looking at is size. And when you're playing on the interior like he has, and you're looking at arm length, something that you don't have access to yet, but six foot four, 300 pounds, an 81.5 run-blocking grade, and just a 68.0 pass-blocking grade. But from what I've heard, the center position, you obviously don't want to be allowing pressures left and right. It's largely less important to be an elite pass blocker at center as much as it is important to be an elite run blocker. You see that because centers, the worst center in the league, will allow 15 to 20 pressures in a single season. The worst tackle could allow over 80. So if that's where you're working with in terms of like pass protection not being as valued as highly as it is in tackle as it is in center. And with him playing as well as he has in the run game, that's what's going to get him looked. Six foot four, 300 pounds. If you're able to move people in the middle of the field and be that quarterback of the offense calling out protections and those things, that is what's going to perk NFL teams' interest. Obviously, you need to have this floor of pass protection at center. You can't be an absolute liability. But him continuing to prioritize the run game will be super important for his stock. In the last five games of last season, Journey Brown averaged 118 yards per game, including 202 in the Cotton Bowl victory over Memphis. Uh, he's back for this 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 season as well. Running back is a different uh, 
element in the NFL. How does he fit the NFL game with wow, with how he plays? I mean, he has the wow factor. I mean, Penn State yeah, he does. has been somewhat of a running back factory for a little bit now, which has been super impressive. Jury Brown, I think, in line with Quan Barkley, Miles Sanders, has this ability that you can covet at the running back position. And I think as teams move forward in the running back position, in a lot of ways is devalued. We're looking for complementary pieces, guys that don't have this overall, you know, jack of all trades type of, you know, skill set, but more specific skill set. I think Journey Brown brings a lot of speed, a lot of explosiveness, that change of pace that you do want at the running back position. And when you can have those splash plays, it's something that the 49ers, one of the better rushing teams in the NFL this past year, have always coveted speed, splash plays, home run hitting ability. We're going to count on our offensive line to give you one or two yards of breathing room, and then you do the rest with that speed you bring to the table. I think Journey Brown is in a similar boat there. I know, Austin, I've asked you about Sean Clifford before, quarterback, but let's give everybody a refresher on where he can make himself better for Penn State in this upcoming season in the uh, new James Franklin Kirk Scirocco offense. Yeah, I mean, Sean Clifford, it's tough. I mean, he has his fair share of criticisms. I mean, looking at this past year, took a significant step down to where he was in 2018. Obviously, in 2018, a limited sample size, but 69.3 PFF passing grade this past year. And when I'm looking at quarterback play, and when you're looking to kind of see guys that, you know, can have success beyond, you know, beyond, um, you know, one year, this multiple season success, you have to see how they're performing in a clean pocket. Just a 75.7 passing grade this past year from a clean pocket and a 53.8 passing grade under pressure. Both of those have to improve, point blank. You cannot be a liability under pressure. That's where a lion's share of turnover-worthy plays, mistakes, game-changing plays happen. You have to be able to be stable. You don't have to be great, but stable, not a liability under pressure. And then when working from a clean pocket, a sub-80.0 grade is not going to cut it. You have to take advantage. I always say this. Take advantage of your clean pockets. Push the ball downfield, make big plays. Because you don't get a lot of them at the college level, and you get far fewer in the NFL. You need to be aggressive with the football, take your shots, accurate down the field when your offensive line has gifted you this clean pocket to take advantage of. When you're dumping it off, missing throws, those types of things, that's what's going to affect your clean pocket passing grade. You know, you, you have to be able to take advantage of those things. So I think he has to prove in a lot of ways. But I think specifically looking at his play from a clean pocket, you need to get more aggressive. You need to, be, you need to hit all of your shots when you're left free and move forward that way. And you mentioned clean pockets. When you look at Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields uh, and the schedules that they play along the way, how often do they operate in a clean pocket? It seems like they operate in a clean pocket more than others. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they have very well-recruited offensive lines. I mean, they're working from a clean pocket and more than 65 70, 70% of the time. And when they are working from those clean pockets, looking at their grades, they're earning 95, 96.0 right. plus PFF passing grades. They're pushing the ball downfield. Another number I look at is average depth of target from a clean pocket. It shows right. you how willing a quarterback is to get aggressive when he's gifted that clean pocket. And nine times out of ten, those quarterbacks that are pushing the ball downfield, that are getting aggressive from a clean pocket, are having a lot of success. Because you need 
to push the ball downfield to create these explosive plays. That that mindset, that philosophy carries through from college to the NFL. It's a big reason why Jameis Winston, even though he did throw 30 picks, also led the NFL in passing yards. This guy was pushing the ball downfield at every chance he got, and sometimes he had success, sometimes he didn't. But to put up those yardage totals, to put up those big plays, you got to risk it. I mean, risk it to, bis- to get the biscuit. And I think you saw that with Jameis. You need to see that with other quarterbacks as well. How do you view that? How do you view risk risk of getting the ball downfield versus look? There's look. You can go out there and you can hit seventy to seventy five percent of your passes, and the average depth of the pass could be five yards. It's uh, the Derek Carr method. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, how do you view that? How do you view risk versus safe? So, so here's the thing: not all you know aggressive quarterbacks are created equal. There are quarterbacks that <laughs> That's when for getting sure. aggressive when pushing the ball downfield don't have the same success as others. And I think taking calculated risks is part of that. Taking calculated risks with an accurate quarterback downfield is part of that. I mean, to compare, Josh Allen had an aggressive average depth of target, but he missed a ton of throws. And if you're missing a lot of throws, throwing the ball downfield obviously has more risk than others. But if you do have a quarterback that's accurate throwing down the field, I think an example would be Matt Stafford before he got hurt this past year. Mm -hmm. When he pushes the ball downfield, a lot of the times good things happen, and it mitigates that risk of obviously bigger incompletions. It's harder to complete passes downfield as the further you go. But if you're not taking those shots, those those calculated risks, those deep shots, you're going to struggle to find big plays. It's a big reason why the the Oakland Raiders, now Las Vegas Raiders, have struggled to find consistency in explosive plays. They don't get aggressive. A lot of checkdowns in that offense, a lot of quick game in that offense. And you're relying on guys to get things done after the catch. It's a big reason why they added Henry Rose this past year. I mean, in the draft, they want a guy that can be explosive, make big plays after the catch. And you saw that at Alabama. Bottom line is that you have to take these risks. But if you don't have a quarterback that can have consistent success going downfield, you have a problem. That's a problem that you need to move behind and obviously adapt the offense to. It's interesting because I've always felt in watching how the game is played today, Al Davis was ahead of his time. I'm serious. Al, Al, Al Davis. Al Davis wanted to have whether it was Cliff Branch or Warren Wells or somebody like that, where he could see. Yeah, he had a possession guy in Bolitnikov, but he wanted to throw the ball downfield. He wanted chunks of yardage. Yardage. And, and that's exactly right. I mean, he was. I would argue he was ahead of his time. Obviously, I think towards the back end, you start to overvalue speed. But yes. Since yes. 2014, the NFL average for having three-plus receivers on the football field is 60%. Yep. It only gets more as we get closer. You want – look at the tight end position. It's gotten thinner and smaller as the, year, as the years go on. You want pass first, receiving first tight ends. Look at the linebacker position. It's not 250-pound guys. It's 230, 225 to keep pace with this pass type of league. Slot corners start. There's so much more speed on the football field now that they are getting those – because their ch- offenses are chasing those big plays and defenses are trying to put personnel on the field that can stop those big plays. It's why speed is so coveted. Austin, it is always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, the Two for One Draft podcast, anywhere you get your podcast, that's where you get the outstanding work and analysis of Austin Gale at Pro Football Focus. Austin, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. Austin Gale, Pro Football Focus, back with more in a moment. Brought to you by Sunbury Motors on News Radio 1070 WKOK.
Okay, so the Big Ten will play nothing but conference games. In all likelihood, the number will be 10. Ohio State, Oregon, Iowa State, Iowa, Michigan, Washington, Wisconsin, Notre Dame. Appalachian State, Wisconsin, Miami, Michigan State, Penn State, Virginia Tech, and Cincinnati and Nebraska. Key non-conference games that will be impacted. Uh, The Pac-12 is expected to follow suit in all this. The question will be if everybody goes in this direction. If that happens, what happens to BYU and Notre Dame? NBC Broadcasting Inter-Squad Scrimmages. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Here on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf and online at sunburymotors.com. Ford, Lincoln, Kia, Hyundai. Great pre-owned inventory. Great deals as well. And a service department to protect them for the life of the vehicle. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Uh, the Big Ten will play only conference games in men's and women's cross country, women's and women's soccer, field hockey, women's volleyball, and football. They have not said how many football games. There are nine scheduled. The rumor has been ten. Thus, one would have to be added. Sandy Barber wrote today, We remain optimistic about our ability to play sports this fall and the 2021 academic year. We have no doubt it will look, feel, and act differently than we have become accustomed to over time But giving our student-athletes the opportunity to compete in the sport they love and to play their entire lives is important to them individually and us collectively as well as to the psyche and viability of our community. Health and safety continue to be paramount. There are significant details that need to be worked out. Some have said it would be 10 games, all conference, maybe played over 13 weeks. We'll see. And do you play nothing but conference games, for example, in basketball? Is that a possibility? It's cuts down on the traveling part. And it gives them more control over the situation. All right. Now, the NHL has very quietly gone about its business. They will open up, uh, get to phase three. They have four phases, the fourth actually playing games. Phase three starts on Monday. 
And with us is the outstanding Emily Kaplan from ESPN, a great Penn Stater. Emily, welcome back. It's great to have you with us. <laughs> yeah, that was always fun, but uh, always nice to say hi to you too, Steve. Okay, Emily, uh, what has allowed the NHL to operate, at least from the outside looking in, as smoothly as they've been able to to this point? I think one of the keys is labor peace between the NHL and NHLPA. Um, They've been strangely collaborative through this entire process, something that we definitely have not seen in a sport like baseball. Um, And to that point, they are about to finalize a four-year CBA extension out of all of this. Um, to give them labor peace for the next couple years. So I think, um, and it's also the financial structure of the NHL, because players have an escrow system and have to shoulder some of the losses the league takes, uh, they had momentum and uh, rather they had incentive uh, to want to get this done and recoup some of the money that they were losing by not playing during the pandemic. You mentioned the four-year CBA extension, uh, which I think is important. And one of the important elements is there in that, I found interesting is the intense desire of the players who want to play in the Olympics. Oh, they've always wanted to play in the Olympics. That's something that, you know, I talk to NHL players for a living, and you ask them their two biggest issues with the league. One or two, you know, they can switch the order. It's escrow and the fact they didn't go to the last Olympics. They love the chance to represent their country. Um, It's a sense of pride for them. And the NHL took a hard-line stance. They didn't go to the last Olympics. Um, But, yeah, it's something that they gave the players as a concession in the CBA. So Toronto and Edmonton, uh, a lot of people, I think, just thought, hey, Vegas, Vegas is a perfect spot for this. Uh, I know Pittsburgh was in the running at one point. What knocked the United States out? Yeah, you know, and the NHL really wanted to go to Vegas. Um, They liked the bubble setup that they had there. They thought it would be um, a good situation with so many luxury hotels walkable to T-Mobile Arena, but it was just a spike of cases right around the time the NHL had to decide that spooked everyone. And they said, if health and safety is really the priority in all of this, why would we be going to somewhere that's a hot zone right now and a hot spot? So that's why they chose two Canadian cities. So they end up choosing Toronto and they choose Edmonton, and it sounds the schedule sounds like it's going to be noon, four thirty nine, and of course Edmonton's on Mountain Time, so that's what uh, two six thirty and eleven. I mean, what, six games a day is that going to be right? Yeah, at least in the first part, and I know everyone's kind of rolling their eyes saying, "How's the ice going to be?" But uh, the NHL is hell bent on having an eighty two game season next year, whether that's feasible or not. That's not for me to judge. And because of that, they need to complete this tournament as quickly as possible. So um, they are cramming in as many games as they can. And honestly, it's going to be a viewer's dream. It's going to be hockey for like 15 straight hours a day. Exactly. And you talked about that. You just wrote an article. It sounds like December 1st is when they want to start up again. Yeah, uh, that's what they're targeting. And, and, you know, that's in the memorandum of understanding that the players are voting on. But everything is tentative at this point. Um, you know, December 1st is a very long time away. We don't know what the climate's going to look right. like. So I would not be shocked if that gets pushed back. Right. Oh, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't either, but I found it was interesting. And they, and, and they still would want to play 82 games starting on December 1st, right? They would, which would mean uh, they would be, you know, trying to truncate the schedule and travel and, and figure out things like that and award a Stanley Cup late in the summer next summer. So we'll see if they can pull that all off and uh, what the players have to say about it. Uh, NBC, of course, was supposed to do the Olympics this summer. It got pushed back to next summer. 
which opens the door for them to carry as many games as possible in this particular summer. How advantageous does this end up being for the NHL in this scenario that the Olympics got pushed back a year? Yeah, it's one of the reasons why they felt like they could do this tournament. And, yeah, they have all these broadcast windows open. Um, you know, what will be interesting is, you know, you mentioned the Olympics are going to get pushed back to next summer. I don't think the, the NHL is going to want to award the Stanley Cup any days past the opening ceremony. So you can kind of look at that as a hard deadline. Um, and, and, you know, another interesting thing is the first qualification rounds are going to be played on um, RSNs and cable providers for local teams because the NHL uh, still owes those guys part of their contracts. Uh, the the tournament itself. What did you think of the format to go into twenty four teams and uh, there's essentially feel like there's a best of five elimination round. Uh, how did you feel about the format they came up with? You know, I don't think anything exactly would have been ideal right now. I don't know if anything would have been fair, and this is the most fair option. Uh, it does seem a little ridiculous that a team like the Montreal Canadiens, who were sellers at the trade deadline, had the 24th best record in the NHL, <laughs> get a play on. But you know what? So be it. Yeah, so be it. I think, what, I think they get the Penguins in the first round, right? They do, and everyone was kind of throwing a fit. Like, what if Carey Price all of a sudden steals the series? How unfair would that be? And it's like, well, that's why they decided that whoever loses that round gets a shot at the number one pick still. Hey, guess what? Okay? Tampa Bay got knocked down in the first round last year by Columbus. Right? And they had an awesome record last year. Anything can happen. Yeah, exactly. Anything anything can happen. Uh, was there Were there... Uh, obviously, safety protocols are critical in, in all of this. Was there anything above all that the players were looking for that the NHL finally said, yeah, you know what, we think you guys are right? Was was there something that was an overriding priority for the players? Um, I don't know necessarily. You know, one of the things the players did want was the opportunity to have their families travel with them. Um, and the NHL said, look, that's just absolutely not feasible if we're trying to create a secure bubble uh, in the first, especially couple rounds where there's so many teams. Uh, they compromised on player as families being able to join in the bubble by the conference finals. Um, but that's something that was a little bit of a contentious issue, but uh, I think everyone had an understanding on where everyone was coming from. With the NBA at Disney at Wide World of Sports, the, Disney has so many properties down there that the, you can create a bubble. But what are the uh, issues they have to deal with? Because Toronto and Edmonton, they're not, you know, yeah, it's a bubble for the players, but it, you're still in a city and not on, pro, on a property. Yeah, you know, they are actually going to be a little bit more like campus setups. Um, so it will, um, they will be able to kind of designate. And really what it is is they're going to say, players, you can go here, you can go here, and you can't go there. You can't cross the street or something like that. And they're trying to bring in as much entertainment as possible so guys don't feel like they're just going ring hotel, ring hotel, and nothing else. <laughs> they're going to let them go on, like, these excursions to golf outings um, as long as the golf course is secure and things like that. So we'll see how it all plays out. And the next part is getting the players there. Some players went back to Europe. Uh, others stayed here in the United States. Others went to Canada. We know the Canadian-U.S. border has been closed. I know there's a waiver to get everybody back and forth. Any issue of anybody getting a player back right now? Uh, not that I've heard of. Guys have slowly been coming back from Europe and the NHL. Um, and the players, you know, they helped arrange charters for them to get from places like Helsinki and Sweden. So, to my knowledge, everyone should be accounted for uh, come training camp on Monday. But, again, a lot can happen before then. And part of a lot that can happen happened to the Tampa Bay Lightning a few weeks ago. How are they right now? 
They're good, yeah. And the uh, the St. Louis Blues also had a little bit of an outbreak. And, you know, one of the more interesting things is in training camp, which, again, begins on Monday, they're not creating a bubble scenario. So guys are going to be able to theoretically go to bars or go out to the grocery store or interact with other people. Um, you know, a lot of it's going to be on the honor system. A lot of it's going to be coaches saying and GM saying, hey, please don't, please stay as healthy as you can for these two weeks. But um, I do feel like it's inevitable we'll get some positive tests between when training camp begins and when they're scheduled to leave to the bubble. Coaches are older. Uh, any concern on their part that's been expressed to you or privately by anybody else about trying to coach in this situation? Uh, the NHL had assured coaches and said, we're not going to make any rule that says if you're over a certain age or X, Y, or Z, you can't be behind the bench. Now, they are doing something for players um, where they are screening them if they have some pre-existing condition. Uh, and the NHL can say, if you are at higher risk for coronavirus, like we can determine that you won't play. Um, but as for coaches, it's going to be up to the individual coach. And I haven't heard of any coaches that I don't believe will be behind the bench. I was pretty surprised to see they weren't going to wear masks behind the bench because everyone I'd been talking to for weeks assumed that would be the case. Um, but the NHL assured them, if you don't want to coach and you don't feel comfortable being there, um, we will make sure your job is safe and we'll accommodate you the best as possible. And they've been testing. I mean, you wrote an article just uh, a couple days ago about testing. They've already administered 2,900 tests since June 8th, including 1,400 this past week. They expected positives. Were the number of positives in terms of the expectation higher, lower, or about what they thought it would be? It's at about 5%, which to my knowledge is about similar to what we're seeing in the NBA as well. Um, so I, I don't know if anyone's exactly shocked, especially because, as I said, there's not, you know, right now the guys, it's all voluntary workouts and guys can do whatever they want. So there's really no control over their freedoms per se. Um, and we know as long as this virus is living amongst us and there's not a vaccine, it's inevitable that people will catch it. For you, is the coverage going to be TV and Zoom? How are you going to be able to cover this? Uh, they're going to allow a small number of reporters into the arena. Um, my work is still deciding whether it's worth it because everything is going to just be on Zoom and players will not have any interactions with reporters face-to-face, um, mostly because no reporters will be in the bubble and they don't, they're protecting them. Okay. Emily, always a pleasure. Great respect for your work and appreciate your time very much. Thanks, Steve. You're always one of my favorites. I love coming on the State College. Uh, great, yeah. great having you home with us here. Thanks so much, <laughs> Emily. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Emily Kaplan, ESPN, Penn State grad. Went from the collegian, eventually went to Sports Illustrated, Monday morning quarterback with Peter King, and then got the job at ESPN to be their lead hockey writer, and she's been outstanding every step of the way we'll take a break we'll talk about 10 games in the Big Ten for football this year no non-conference games this is by the way a uh, if it uh, if it does play out like this it's going to be actually a tough blow for the Mid-American Conference We'll talk about that in a moment. Brought to you by Sunbury Motors on News Radio 1070 WKOK.
When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Subway Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Merth family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle's worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC Way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC Way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC Way. The SMC Way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years. Great to have you with us on the show today. The uh, Big Ten announcing conference-only matchups uh, for all fall sports. Now, the Ivy League's not going to play at all, but the Big Ten is going to play nothing but conference matchups. Now, in football, you may be wondering... Is it just the 9, or would they add a 10? There's a possibility a 10th could be added. They are expecting, before the week's out, that the other major conferences will follow suit. If they do, it is going to be a huge blow to smaller conferences. Also, who does Notre Dame play? I mean, they are, they'd be obligated to playing five ACC games, so is that it? And then play some non-conference games against maybe some MAC schools? I don't know. BYU, which is also an independent? I don't know. And so now we'll, we'll wait and see on that. But for the Mid-American Conference, this is a tough blow because there are several Mid-American Conference schools. These guaranteed games are critical. Remember I was talking earlier about the Ivy League and the Ivy League doesn't want to play until anything until after January 1. They haven't even decided yet on that as to whether they're even going to play after January 1. But their financial, the financial blow to them would not be the NCAA tournament. They'd still have that. The financial blow to them would be all of the guarantee games where they go, you know, for example, as I said to Matt Leon, Penn opened the season at Alabama last year. They received a chunk of coin to go down and do that. They're scheduled to play here at Penn State at the Jordan Center right after uh, right after Christmas. But for Conference USA, for 
the American Conference, for the Mid-American Conference, for the Sun Belt, maybe to a point the Mountain West. This is going to be tough because they depend on that money that so many of you fans scoff at all the time. Oh, what are they playing Akron for? What are they playing? Well, guess what? Okay, you can't play Ohio State every week. You can't play Michigan every week. And these games are critical to keeping everybody alive. I mean, look, I mean you look at Central Michigan, Western Michigan, Ball State, Bowling Green. They're playing two Big Ten teams each. Or at least they were scheduled to. They need the money to keep their student-athletes and their athletic departments alive. You have to have the ability to look at the big picture sometimes. Why are they playing these things? Look at the big picture, please. Can you take a moment, look outside your own bubble? And they are going to be really hurting, and there are going to be a lot of scholarships lost because there was no money coming in this year. Because, I mean, look, this is a hard decision the Big Ten had to make, and it's, you know... It's a decision which I completely understand. You're able to control, have at least some semblance in an almost uncontrollable situation. This gives you the most control possible. How about that? And again, all of us need to continue to be vigilant with what we're doing. Can't be careless out there. Try and somehow get the situation under control. Now, I realize that while some numbers are up, the fortunate part is the death rate's down. But decisions on the season have to be made really about now anyway. And Penn State football is about to make that transition into the next phase on Monday. And then two weeks from that, Monday is it two weeks from yeah two weeks from that Monday. In fact, I think it's what. Uh, let's see. Eleven days is eleven days after. So the thirteenth is when they can convene and do more. The twenty fourth is the mini camp. Seventh is training camp. So now they're out to revamp. When does the season actually start? Who might be the tenth Big Ten opponent? The initial phase was making this decision today. The fall will feature no non-conference opponents in any Penn State sport that's a fall sport. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors. 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia Routes 11 and 15. 